reading from the book of Samuel. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took for her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from the uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the, the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in the booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. In the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, had her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The word of the Lord. As we begin, let me offer one more word of prayer, so please bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, I pray, come Holy Spirit, come in Jesus' name, amen. This morning I had to take off my jacket, both in the first service and here in the second service, because I'm having chills. I'm, I'm literally having like hot flashes over this passage. And uh, why? Because I... Bible. And so we're going to dive into this passage and, and hear not only what it meant 
for those people, but for us today. And uh, as we begin, I want to begin with this question. Have you ever taken a hard fall? Have you ever taken a hard fall? You know, before getting real deep and real heavy, I thought, well, how can I start with a light illustration? So I thought of the one and only Blaze. Blaze Sorensen, our middle child. Uh, before we moved to Charleston, we were living just outside of New York City and uh, just over the border in Connecticut. And I know a lot of you think, like, oh, Connecticut, New Jersey, it's just you know, urban sprawl. And, but it's actually really beautiful in that area. And there's rolling hills and forests and rivers, streams. And, and we happen to live in one of those areas. And, and I think it was around uh, Blaze's third birthday, fourth birthday, that we started to teach him how to ride a bike. And I don't know about the other parents in the room, but I wanted my kids to be like X Games kids, right? Like the Travis Pastranas, is, is, is that how you say his name, right? Like the Sean Whites, like, and what better age to start than age three? And so we, we got him a bike, and we were teaching him how to ride this bike, and we thought to ourselves, you know, it'd be real special if we took our kids and went to the nature center, the Stanford Nature Center down the street. And there was hills, and we thought, well, we think they can make it. So uh, we, we rode and walked to the Stanford Nature Center, this little farm and trail uh, you know, park. And on the way back, we, we came back, and there was this huge hill. It was probably 50 yards long, 45 degrees down. And I thought, I, I shouldn't probably let this little guy do this, but he said, Dad, I can do this. And he just had wide eyes looking at that hill. And I, I just imagined that he was imagining how glorious his trek down the hill would be. And I said, well, Blaze, I just want you to know, like, as you go, use your brake. Don't, don't go full throttle. And I said, you know, you can have the freedom to choose what you want to do. And he's like, let's do it, Dad. So next thing you know, Blaze starts going down this hill, and, and he starts gaining momentum. And I scream, Blaze, use your brake. And he either didn't hear me or he was already in a state of shock and panic because his little legs kicked out and his little bike started to wobble. You ever, you ever seen that or had that experience? And at that point, if you hit your brake, you're going to do a Superman, right? You're going to fall on your face. So I think he was committed and he was just gaining speed. And then near the end, near the bottom, it was just a disaster. He goes flying over his handlebars, lands on his belly and his face, and is bleeding and bruised and screaming. And I'm screaming, Blaze, Blaze. And we go down, and that day, we, we, he fell so badly, we were literally picking out gravel from his wounds. You see, this leads to the deeper truth of our passage, which is this. Whether we are a kid or, or, or a king, we all fall down. Whether we are a kid or a king, we all fall down. This fall, we've been going through the life of King David, and then we hit Advent and, and Christmas, all that good stuff. And you ever read a book and you're only three quarters of the way through and you want to finish the book? Well, we're going to finish our sermon series starting today on the life of King David. We have three more weeks 
in the life of King David. If you have not been with us in the fall, that's okay. You can go on our website and listen to the sermon series, or I'm going to give a quick review in just a minute. But this passage shows us that David fell, and he fell hard. And uh, as one theologian writes, we're all just steps away from hurting ourselves or someone else. Specifically, I I see four steps to David's fall that we're going to examine this morning. Step number one is when we opt out of our duties. Step number two is when we get lost in our lust. Step number three is when we cover our tracks. And step number four is when we live out the lie. So we're going to spend the next few minutes unpacking these steps and see what they mean for us. Step number one to a fall is when we opt out of our duties. The passage begins, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Okay, so for a quick review of King David. King David wasn't always a king. Before he was a king, he was a little shepherd boy. We find this little shepherd boy in 1 Samuel receiving a call to meet kind of this great priest. And that great priest looks at David and anoints him as the future king. The word anointed means Christos. And he's like a little Christ that will one day lead Israel, protect Israel, risk his life for Israel. And in that beginning chapter of little David's life, we see that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Then you fast forward and you see this epic battle between Israel and this foreign force, and there's this ugly, mean giant named Goliath. And everyone's terrified to fight Goliath except one person, the little shepherd boy, right? And we learn in that story that the greatest strength David ever displays is not his confidence in his, himself, but in his confidence and trust in the Lord. And really, it's the Lord that's the hero of the story. And, and then from there, you think, oh, life will get easier. He's anointed. He's, he's the victor. Wrong. It gets harder. And he enters into this season of darkness where Saul, the current king, is trying to take out David's life. And God, we see, doesn't take David out of the darkness, but he takes him through it and develops his character and his leadership. And so he does with us. And then you fast forward to 2 Samuel, and you see David bring together these broken tribes, this broken nation of Israel, and he brings them together with great unity and love and leadership. We read in the Psalms, blessed are you, or blessed are brothers and sisters when they dwell together in unity, for that is where the Lord commands his blessing, to paraphrase. And so basically, David's anointed, he's He's now king as we enter into this, his, uh, this chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. And he's so blessed that 2 Samuel 8 reads like this. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David reigned over all of Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. But something goes terribly wrong as we open up 
the 11th chapter. Why? Notice the change. Chapter 8, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went, and then fast forward a couple chapters. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and David remained in Jerusalem. The point being, in this passage, David is all alone. It's a huge change. And, and the reader is left asking, what happened? Why is he all alone? Why, why has he abandoned his post and his troops? Maybe he was burned out. Let me ask those leaders in the room, is leadership exhausting or what? Right? Is the fatigue real or what? Maybe he's burned out. Maybe he's bored. Maybe he just wants kind of a, a change of pace. Maybe he has health issues. We don't know. We're trying to put together the pieces, but here's what we do know. When the kings go to battle, David stays home. It's a departure from the character and the leader we've come to know and love, and it's dangerous. The former attorney general for the United States has this to say about aloneness and isolation. The most prevalent health issue in the country is not cancer or heart disease or obesity, it's isolation, according to Vivek Murthy in, a, in an article he wrote for the Harvard Business Review. Let me read that again. The most prevalent health issue in our country is not cancer or heart disease or obesity, it's isolation. And David found himself alone. How about you? How about me? Do we find ourselves alone right now in our lives? A disconnected person is at risk to themselves and those around them. That's step number one. David, for whatever reason, opts out of his duties. He ends up alone. Step number two, he gets lost in his lust. It happened late one afternoon, the passage goes on, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and, and one said, Is that this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now I want us to imagine the scene. First, David's no longer with his troops, and in fact, the passage later goes on to say, the ark for the Lord is actually with the troops, meaning even the presence of God is out in the battlefield, but David's back all alone. And then he looks, and he doesn't just look, look, he locks on to this beautiful woman who's bathing. Now, imagine this. Do you think David's roof would have been maybe one of the lowest in the city or one of the highest as king? Right? You know, with, with his position came power and responsibility. And the idea being he could look over his city look over the land and protect them with his power, with his position, with his perch. But he does just the opposite. 
He doesn't use his power to protect. He uses his power to consume. And he says, I see that woman and I want that woman for me. And again, he departs from the character we've come to know and love. In the message, uh, the 10th commandment is summarized like this. No lusting after your neighbor's house or wife or servant or maid or ox or donkey. Don't set your heart on anything that is your neighbor's. Let me repeat that last statement. Don't set your heart on anything that is your neighbor's. And David's saying, you know what? I don't care about that. I see her and I want her for me. I'm reading the Bible, the one-year kind of Bible through the Bible Project, and uh, they define sin in this way. Sin is defining good and evil for myself. The desire to call the shots myself, the inward turn of the human heart to do what's best for me and my tribe, even if it's at the expense of you and your tribe. And, and I would argue, looking at this passage and looking at the world in which we live, that we are set up to fall to lust, to fall to coveting, you know, coveting, to say, I want what I don't have. If only I had his looks. If only I had her body. If only I had their health. If only I had that job. If only I lived in that city. If only I had that car, etc., 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 and we live in a world of image and impulse where we can see what we want, we can say what we want, we can order what we want whenever we want. Think about it. We can see what we want, say what we want, order what we want whenever we want. Here's a test. How many times a day does the average American look at their phone? We got 30. Approximately 80 times a day we look at our phones. Now here's the kicker. How many times are you targeted with ads as you look at your phones and other things around our world? On a given day, how many ads do you think you see? Research says over 4,000 ads a day per person. Is it any surprise that we get lost in our loneliness and in our lust? I see it, I want it, and I want it now, and I want it for me. Step number one to a hard fall is when we opt out of our duties. Step number two is when we get lost in our lust. We covet what we don't have. Step number three is when we start to cover our tracks after we've acted out. The passage goes on. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went down out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why have you not gone down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, 
and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field, shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Notice, not only has David sinned and fallen, he's now wanting Uriah to kind of break the rules of engagement for any military man. You see, in those days, during battle times, you were not allowed to go home and sleep with your bride, have intimacy. David's like, that's okay. How's it going? You need a little time. You see, he's trying to convince Uriah to go have intimacy with his wife so she might, and he might be convinced that that's their kid. And, and, and with great irony, Uriah, who's a foreigner, that has been welcomed into Israel, he's the one who's faithful, while David, the king of the people, is unfaithful. And uh, he not only says, hey, go, go lie down with your wife. Later in the passage, we didn't have time to read it this morning, he actually gets Uriah drunk. And, and with, again, the same motive, why don't you go sleep with your wife? And Uriah, in his, even his drunkenness, is faithful, more faithful than David. You see the irony? So then it, it takes a bitter turn. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. You see, David moves from being a king who saves lives to a murderer who takes lives. And now it's, this sin is ruining multiple lives, multiple families, Multiple men are now struck down as David tries to cover up his sin. And that's the nature of sin. We read later in the New Testament in James these words. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, sin is progressive and deadly. It's progressive and deadly. If you have a secret sin, if I have a secret sin, it will only get worse until it's dealt with. And that's what we see here with David. Do you think David, when he opted out and said, hey, I'm not going to go to battle this time around, Joab, you guys go take care of it, do you think he thought, I'm going to become a murderer? No, no way. But first, he opts out of his duties. Second, he falls and locks into his lust. Third, he starts to cover his tracks. And then fourth, he begins to live out his lie. The passage concludes, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought forth her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So even though David covers up his sin in the eyes of the people, his sin still stands in the eyes of the Lord. The, the literal translation is what he did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It still stood in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so I want everyone to take a deep breath. It's been a heavy message. I'm going to lighten it real quick, but to get the point across, what we tend to do. I've told this story, I think, once before, but 
it's fitting. So here we go. When Carly and I were early in our marriage, I was in seminary. She was teaching. And uh, I used to be OCD about touching up with paint all over my house, maybe once a week. We started having these community groups in our house, and people started marking up our house. And we, we got two golden retrievers, and there was marks all over our house. And I thought to myself, you know what would be great? If I touch up our house, right? Oh, how thoughtful. All these blemishes and marks. So she's teaching. I'm at home. I go get the can from the garage. I start touching up. I spend hours touching up. And uh, she comes home and stops in her tracks and is white as a ghost. And she goes, what have you done? You see, I'm colorblind. And uh, one of our house, one of the rooms in our house was peach, and one was this light green. They're exactly the same to me. And even in preparing today's message, she's looking at me. Say hi, Carly. She's in the back with the kiddos. Anyway, she, I said, how many marks did I touch up? She said, probably 500. So I thought I had touched up and covered up with what was you know, a green paint. I think it was a peach paint in reality. She just saw all of it. You see, that's what David does here. He thinks he's covered it all up. But God knows. God knows the sin he's committed. God knows how hard he has fallen. And it's a warning, not just for the Israelites back then, but it's a warning, it's a challenge for us today. I think this quote from Tim Chester summarizes this passage well. I would never do that, you may be thinking. But please don't think you're better than David. Remember, this is God's anointed king, the man after God's own heart, the writer of great psalms of faith, the one to whom God spoke directly. He was a better man than you and he fell catastrophically. He was a better man than you and me, and he fell catastrophically. In summary, whether we are a kid or a king, we all fall down at some point. That's what the Bible says, and that's what we see. As a takeaway or a turn or an application from this passage, I have two things. The first, instead of opting out of relationship, I challenge you to opt into relationship. Authentic, gospel-centered relationship. We read in the book of Ecclesiastes, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls down and has no one to help them up. Two are better than one. Pity the man or woman who falls down and has no one to help them up. Who do you have to help you up right now in your life? I mean, this passage has haunted me all week. And I hope it haunts you. I think that's its intent. Why? I now have three kids. I lead this beautiful church. I have one dog that's dying, one dog that's too hyper, right? 
In the month of December and January, my kids who play on peewee basketball leagues, they're not even that good, 47 games. We have no space or time for anyone. And as we get busier, we get more isolated. And as we get more isolated, we get more at risk. And as we get more at risk, temptation comes our way. And we don't walk away, we walk towards it. Let's be real. Who do you have? John Maxwell, as he was uh, recruiting for the men's hike in the fall, the Daniel Island Fellowship men's hike, he said, or asked, who's your 2 a.m. friend? Who's your 2 a.m. friend? Do you have someone that you are real, authentic, open with? What guts me about this passage is David did have someone, and he had died. His name was Jonathan. You notice Jonathan's not in this passage? He died at the end of 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, we read that their souls were knit together. They had made a covenant of love. And I just can't help but think in his isolation, there's also exhaustion and this loneliness. And David makes these horrible decisions that affect not only himself, but all those around him. So friends, instead of opting out, opt in with God and another person or two today or this week. Say, I need need to talk. We need to get together. So opt in. And number two, instead of hiding your sin, confess it. We read in James, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. When's the last time you confessed your sins to another person and invited them to pray for you? That's the challenge, but that's the glorious invitation through this passage. Three years ago, we just opened the Holy City Collective as a co-working space, and we're still getting our church started, right? And a guy calls me who I love to death, and he says, can I come meet with you? And I said, sure. And he comes, and we're sitting at that barn table over there in the corner, and he's like, I'm, I'm really in bad shape. I'm really in bad shape. And I said, well, tell me what's going on. And he's like, I think I'm, I'm struggling with either anxiety or depression, and, and then I'm numbing out through substance abuse. And it's gotten, it's spiraled out of control. Like, I literally can't do life with my family, with my wife, and, and I want to. I, I need help. And so we talked, we met, we prayed. This guy got into counseling. Uh, he got into AA. And even, even when we met together, he got in with other guys, even when we met together, I could see the shackles of shame falling off because he was no longer hiding and the sin was no longer festering. It was now out in the light. And I want to celebrate that this last week he celebrated three years of sobriety. God loves you and wants to free you. But you can't do it alone. Opt in and uh, bring yourselves and your sin and all your grit into the presence of his grace. Now, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would pierce our hearts and you would save us from ourselves. I don't think anyone in here is exempt. May we have the courage to take that next step 
especially even now in our time of response. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.